With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 76th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Google Play, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And also, I want to thank... All of my now 116,000 plus listeners throughout the world, I truly do appreciate you listening in. My June Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of May. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues, but also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send out to their employees because they always have a hard time funding those types of things, you know. So you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. So today is the next in my series of shows on encryption. And as work from home brings more use of online meeting tools such as Zoom, more is being discussed about the need for strong encryption, which is super good, right? Well, also it's good to raise awareness for the need for encryption and strong encryption. However, while the awareness for the need for strong encryption is rising, There are those in the U.S. Department of Justice and FBI and special interest groups and, of course, throughout the world uh, in other countries who are also ramping up their efforts to weaken strong encryption. Now, this is even though they're insisting they do not really want to weaken encryption, They simply want tech companies to build strong encryption so that no one can access encrypted transmissions and files except for the FBI, the NSA, and other law enforcement and government groups worldwide. And of course, it's in the name of fighting cybercrime and stopping and catching sexual predators. And of course, those are very important goals But is um, asking for weakened encryption to do this a smart thing? Well, today I am happy to have as my guest someone who has deep insights and knowledge about cryptography and most definite opinions that I believe everyone respects about this 
encryption versus safety and crime debate. Today, I'm speaking with Bruce Schneier. Bruce is an internationally renowned security technologist called a security guru by The Economist. Bruce is the New York Times bestselling author of 14 books, including Click Here to Kill Everybody, which I really love that title, by the way, as well as hundreds of articles, essays, and academic papers. Bruce's influential newsletter, Cryptogram, and blog, Schneier on Security, are read by over 250,000 people. Schneier is a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, a board member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Access Now, and the Tor Project, and an advisory board member of Epic and Verified Voting.org, and many other types of activities. Uh, Bruce is the Chief of Security Architecture at Enrupt Inc. And you can see more about Bruce Schneier in his bio posted with this show at my Voice America page. Bruce, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Ah, thanks for having me on this uh, day like every other day. Exactly. This will certainly, uh, year will go down in history. You know, but talking about maybe an earlier year, in April of 2019, when things were a little bit more normal, I heard you say at an interview or in an interview at a Secure World event with regard to encryption that putting backdoors in encryption is not just stupid, it's dangerous. But yet, we have William Barr and the DOJ uh, aggressively twisting tech companies' arms, telling them they'd better build encryption that will only allow law enforcement, the FBI, or the DOJ to access encrypted files and transmissions. And, you know, Barr's even stated, as I'm sure you are aware, but some of my listeners might not be. He says that he's not asking for much. He does not want to use the encryption to get into business or critical infrastructure. He just wants to get into consumer products and services such as messaging, smartphones, email, voice, and data applications. Um, What are your thoughts about this continued pursuit to require weak encryption in the name of crime fighting? I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, the one thing I want to grab uh, that you said sort of to start mm-hmm. is Barr's comment that he does not interested in critical infrastructure. He just wants personal communications. Mm-hmm. And that's a difference that doesn't exist anymore. There's no difference between personal communications and critical infrastructure. We have a president who uses uh, an Android phone. Uh, there are smartphones in the hands of every police officer, judge, elected official, legislator, nuclear power plant operator, voting official. And this notion that you can separate critical infrastructure from personal communications just isn't true. Mm -hmm. So you can't have one without the other. Especially, I mean, think about this month where we've all learned to work from home using Zoom and Gmail and Dropbox is that critical infrastructure or is that personal communications? It's kind of both. 
Mm-hmm. And so is everything else. So, you know, we can have this uh, debate, but you can't start from, I don't want access to critical infrastructure, because that's what you're going to get, because everything is critical infrastructure today. Well, it seems like he should know this by now, because he's been asking for this for a long time. So do you think that he really does understand this, and he thinks that um, maybe pushing a different narrative will help to get the job done by the tech companies? Yeah. or It's hard to know. My belief is that law enforcement is myopic. And, and you know, I don't mean that pejoratively. Mm-hmm. What they want to do is solve crimes. That's their job. So they look at everything through that lens. But what I sort of just said is that there's a security versus security debate here. And mm-hmm. it, it's a it's not an obvious it's not obvious. So there's a security benefit in having communications available to law enforcement, even though that also means the same communications is available to uh, criminals and other governments and everyone else you don't want to have it. There is a security benefit in keeping communications secure from criminals and terrorists and everybody else, even though it also means that people can use those same systems to plan and execute crimes. Right? It's security versus security. Mm-hmm. And if you are the FBI, the only half of that equation you see are bad guys using the tools. You don't see the good guys using the tools half of the equation. And so this really isn't something that the FBI is qualified to make a decision on because they only see half of the problem. They don't see the other half. Yeah, their focus is very myopic, as you indicated. Well, they they actually have an but that's entire... their job, right? We we want right. that. We, I mean, I like it when the FBI focuses on crime fighting. That feels like a good thing for the FBI to do. But you know, where I sit, these technologies, communications, storage, computing, are so critical for national security that we must do everything possible to make them as secure as possible. Uh, In the words of a Columbia University professor, we must have a defense-dominant strategy. Defense has to win because it's too important for it not to. So you have to go to the FBI and say, you know, I get it. I get that this will make it harder for you to solve crimes, but we as society need you to do that extra work because our security depends on it. Well, and that extra work would be what? To look at the metadata around the existing encrypted transmissions and files, um, embedding themselves? It's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So looking at data on a phone and an email account is one piece of forensic, digital forensic data that the FBI can get. Now, we live in a society where we are under constant surveillance. Companies are tracking our every move. This data is not encrypted. It's available. Companies have it. It is the golden age of surveillance. What, we, what I want, what we want, is for the FBI to be sophisticated in how they do digital evidence gathering. It is not as simple as, here's a phone, get me what's in it. 
It could be a variety of techniques. And I think this is where the FBI is falling down and, and we actually could help with, with funding. The FBI, I don't think, has a sophisticated way of, of, of solving crimes that, that doesn't involve this brute force break encryption. And actually, this is why you're seeing a split in government between what the FBI wants and what the NSA wants. The NSA is not in favor of breaking encryption. The NSA is not in favor of backdoors. They actually are very sophisticated at collecting digital evidence, digital data. They know there are lots of ways to get what they want, and they don't have to sacrifice national security to do it. I want that same sophistication in the FBI. And if we have that, I think there'll be less clamoring for backdoors because there'll be other options the FBI will have. So how do we get there? What are we going to need to do to make sure that the FBI gets more technologically savvy and uh, if they aren't talking to the NSA already? You know, so there are, there are rules about uh, transfer between the FBI and the NSA. Mm-hmm. So this, there's things that legally you know, can't be done. Uh, you know, I think it's two things. We need to recognize – when you get the FBI to recognize that they're not going to get a backdoor, that getting a backdoor is too dangerous to national security, and then – we need to fund them in digital forensics. And I'm not sure. Do I mean I, I know they have entire divisions that deal with fingerprint data and tire track data and DNA data and all of this face recognition data. You know what do they have for digital forensics? How can they assist local law enforcement? It's not just the FBI here. Mm-hmm. Most of the crimes we want solved are under state and local jurisdictions. So what's the mechanism to get this tech expertise down to police departments and sheriffs and and, and those that need it locally? And I think this is something we have to fund, Mm -hmm. but we have to decide we need it. And the first step to that is realizing that we're not going to break encryption. So we need to do it, I'm going to say the hard way, but the correct way and the secure way. Well, and I've had a lot of people who listen to my show say, well, you know, they're saying that you should be able to create a way for, you know, the entire FBI to get access without um, the others. And, you know, and I've tried to explain to them how that would weaken the encryption. But when they hear these leaders of different agencies saying no, technology companies can do this. They just don't want to because they don't want to lose money or they don't, uh, you know, it will hurt their their bottom line. What would you say to them? It when- kind of doesn't. I mean, already, God, companies like Google and Apple and Facebook provide law enforcement an enormous amount of data. Spying on people is their business model. That's what these companies do for a living. They provide all of that data to the FBI under the proper court orders. The notion that they would lose money if they, you know, did if they weaken encryption on a device just makes no sense. If they, if that was true, they'd be losing money now for all the data they provide. It's not a matter of the companies needing to tech harder if they could. You know, they just don't want to. The problem is. It's what you said. I need to make this data available to every single FBI agent. Oh, and by the way, and 
uh, state uh, law enforcement officer and local and county, but not to anybody else. What's the difference between a sheriff and somebody else? The -hmm. difference is who signs their paycheck, right? I can't create a technical system that operates differently depending on who signs the paycheck of the person using it. I just can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't make a backdoor that only law enforcement can use. Because who is law enforcement is not a technical distinction. It is a social distinction. And the technical system can't make that distinction. So either everyone gets to spy or nobody gets to spy. Right? Either the system is secure from everybody or it's secure from nobody. That's my problem. That's why a backdoor is dangerous. Yes, if I could have a system that magically only works if a warrant is nearby, right? Like the piece of paper imbues some essence into the air, which makes the computer behave differently. That'd be great. I can't do that. One world, one system, one answer. You pick your answer, security or surveillance. This gets back to defense dominant. We have to choose security. Well, let's imagine, just for the fun of it, let's say that uh, one of the big tech companies, and we'll use an imaginary one because I don't want it to get out that I actually said that somebody was doing this when it's uh, just a use case. But let's say company XYZ has an app used by millions of people all over the world. So now all of a sudden, let's say they are giving access to law enforcement and government agencies. What would you foresee happening in the first year that such types of accessible encryption were mandated and enforced and millions of people throughout the world were actually using accessible encryption? So so I, I, I have no qualms on using real names and real companies. Let's talk about WhatsApp. Okay. WhatsApp is end-to-end encrypted. So let's say that Facebook acquiesces and makes WhatsApp uh, backdoorable. So that, I mean, there have been a bunch of proposals proposing how that would work, but basically it would allow someone to eavesdrop on the conversation. All right. So what would happen? Most of us wouldn't care, right? We wouldn't notice. We, we use Facebook Messenger and Facebook Messenger, Facebook eavesdrops, and we all use it anyway. Mm-hmm. So most of us would not notice. Most criminals wouldn't notice either, right? Criminals are kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. They'll use what's available. They use uh, systems that uh, can be eavesdropped on all the time, right? They use Facebook Messenger. They use email, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're committing crimes from the Gmail account. All of this is, is accessible already. So likely to be no change. Who, who would that affect? Well, that would affect smart criminals who would say, I'm not going to use this, right? I, I'm not using Gmail. I'm going to use something else. And it would affect... Every one of us who doesn't know better, but who the criminals want to spy on. Right? Mm-hmm. So the average uh, business executive, the average senator and congressperson is probably going to keep using it, even though it is insecure, right? Because they're not tech savvy. Most people aren't. Mm-hmm. So those who are tech savvy will switch to other apps. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about mandating back doors. You can't mandate them in general. You have to go to Facebook. You have to go to Apple and say you, right? Mm-hmm. iMessage. You make iMessage breakable. So there's lots of other apps out there. 
Now, maybe you could pass a draconian law saying everything made in the United States must be insecure in this way. Sure, you can imagine that being passed. So I did a survey a few years ago uh, looking at encryption products around the world. I found like 600 of them, uh, most of them not from the United States, who would be unaffected by this law. Mm-hmm. So anybody who cares starts moving to one of these other products. And sure, we can imagine, oh, I don't know, we can strong arm Australia and the EU and Japan. But still, I mean, there are products coming out of the Middle East and Africa and Eastern Europe and South America. And they will get more prominence because those of us in the know will know that these are the secure apps. The other ones are not secure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's say that happens. Who benefits more? I think the criminals benefit the most because they now have the, the world of us who doesn't know better using insecure apps. The FBI benefits, I don't think, that much. I mean, yes, the stupid criminals are going to use the uh, backdoor apps, but they're stupid criminals. They'll make, they, make, they make mistakes anyway. Right? I don't need say to get them. The, the savvy criminals, the terrorists, you hear uh, the child exploiters, they spend a lot of attention on their OPSEC, their operational security. They will find a secure platform. And it cannot be that we can make no secure platforms. We don't have that reach. That's impossible. Software is too easy to create. And a key point, I think, um, that you discussed, but maybe to make it, say it a, a slightly different way, what you're talking about sounds like it would create a huge homeland security, national security risk because of all of the people in government, as you mentioned, and the military, Um who are using these types of apps. seems like that would put our country at great risk. So that is the big worry I have, especially when you move to the Internet of Things, especially when you move to systems that affect the world in direct physical manner. So if you think about any IoT anything, you likely control it from your iPhone. Mm -hmm. And whether it's your thermostat or a medical device or talking to your car, your phone is your controller hub. That needs to be secure. And I think about not just elected officials, but I think I said this before, uh, nuclear power plant operators, uh, election officials, judges, police officers. You know, th- these devices, these systems are critical. Every single CEO has got an iPhone or a Google phone in their pocket. And it seems like um, what... What a lot of people don't realize, too, is not only is it about national security, not about personal data sec- uh, privacy, but also intellectual property. I mean, it seems like uh, you could be giving away all of your your corporate secrets without encryption uh, or without strong encryption anyway. And that's certainly the corporate angle. I mean, why mm-hmm. would a CEO use a system that's backdoored? I mean, and. So likely he will, and the answer is going to be he doesn't know better. And just like right, Donald Trump uses an insecure phone for a lot of what he at least did in the beginning. I, I don't know if things have changed because he didn't really know better. So most of us, and most of us don't know better, mm-hmm. are just going to use whatever there is. That's why 
we use Gmail. That's why we use Facebook Messenger. That's why we use all these platforms that are insecure. Hopefully, we move to more secure platforms. So those of us who are using WhatsApp or iMessage or Signal, you know, we are more secure because of that. And, and here's the rub. It's, it's infrastructure. If I make those systems secure, criminals will use them too. I can't stop that. Mm-hmm. And if I build a restaurant, a restaurant, remember when you used to go to restaurants? It was kind of a neat mm-hmm. idea. So mm-hmm. they had these restaurants when we were younger where you'd go and sit with near strangers. Anyway, they would feed you. Now, I could have a discussion and say, this is crazy. Think of it. We are, there are kidnappers plotting their plots in restaurants. I need you to build a restaurant that only feeds law-abiding citizens. But I can't do that. Right? I, right. Can't, I can't make that distinction. So I'm stuck. I either have to build infrastructure for the majority case or for the exception. And here we have to build up the majority case. We have to have defense dominate. Because yes. it's too important not to. Absolutely. So we're coming up right now on our break time. Uh, so we're going to stop here and continue our conversation after this break, uh, this quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with computer data and encryption security guru, Bruce Schneier, about encryption. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with computer data and encryption security guru, Bruce Schneier. And please go check out his website at schneier.com. And we're talking today about encryption. So right before the break, 
uh, we started to get into how so many people use different uh, apps that are very popular. But, you know, right now, uh, something that's very popular are online meeting tools. And we've heard a lot about Zoom in the news because Zoom, you know, they were talking about how they discovered it wasn't secure, it doesn't use encryption. What are your thoughts about that, Bruce, about uh, Zoom's encryption or lack thereof? Now, Zoom's been through a lot, haven't they? They went from obscure to everybody's using them for everything. And we we learned about Zoom. We started loving Zoom. Now we're sick of Zoom. Yes. And yes, Zoom has had lots of uh, private security problems. I don't want to blame the company too much. I guess I kind of do. A, I kind of do. They made a lot of bad security decisions early on. I think they had no one on staff who understood cryptography, and they got thrust in the spotlight much faster than expected. Normally, you think companies will improve things as they get bigger. Zoom didn't have that chance. All right, so what were their problems? They were using uh, encryption in a very bad mode of operation that mm-hmm. rendered uh, much less security. Their key management wasn't ideal. Keys were generated at the servers, not at the clients. And they claimed to have end-to-end encryption, and they didn't. There are other things, too. We read about Zoom bombing. So their meeting ID numbers weren't long enough. People could guess them. Uh, Fast forward to now, they've done a lot of work. They're not perfect. They're much better. Mm -hmm. So your Zoom call, as long as... It is not being recorded in the cloud, and everyone on the call is using the Zoom app and not the website. It is end-to-end encrypted. That's good. Mm -hmm. The key seems to be generated somewhere at Zoom. That's bad. Hopefully, that will change. Uh, They've spent a lot of time working on their defaults, on where... uh, where meetings are routed so they don't go through China, for example, that you you can now pick better security. Uh, Recently, there was a uh, document the NSA published on the security of the different video apps. Uh, Zilla did something similar. I blogged this last week. You go to my blog, you can see the links to that. So there are a couple of guides on which app you should choose. Zoom is one of the good ones. Zoom has a really good security guide that they published on how your configuration settings make a difference. That's worth reading. So Zoom is not perfect. There's still some things I want them to do. They've done a lot in a very short time. Their heart seems to be in the right place. They kind of want to do the right thing, I think. Mm -hmm. So I'm still having meetings on Zoom. I teach at Harvard. Harvard standardized on Zoom a couple of years ago. So that's what we were using. Uh, my company was using Zoom. I think it, it just swapped for, for other reasons. And I use Zoom for personal things. And you know, if your pro if your threat profile isn't severe, I think it's fine. And if you saw the picture of uh, Boris Johnson running a UK cabinet meeting over Zoom, that's probably still a mistake. Mm-hmm. But most of us are not Boris Johnson and needing to run the UK cabinet. So, you know, you mentioned something that I know some of my uh, listeners, especially those in, um, you know, teaching in colleges and in high schools, you said as long as your Zoom 
um, meeting is not being stored in the cloud. So is there any way that you can see during a Zoom meeting whether or not that Zoom meeting is being recorded and stored in a cloud? What would you tell to teachers who are holding their classes using Zoom? So I think, you know, when holding classes using Zoom is not going to be a high-risk operation on Zoom. Uh, yes, when a, when a meeting is being recorded, everybody sees in the upper left of the window uh, a button that says recording. Mm-hmm. Right? It is illegal in many states to record things without both parties consenting. So Zoom will show you. There's no recording happening within Zoom without that. Now, of course, uh, if you're seeing on your computer, you could probably run a recording. Uh, we'll just do a screen capture, and mm-hmm. Zoom has nothing to do with that. But if it's recorded by Zoom, that you see that in the window. When you set the recording as the uh, meeting organizer, you can decide you want to record it locally on your computer or in the cloud. So you get to set that. Uh, no one else will, will see that setting. That's not a setting that's uh, world-readable. It's setting that you just know. Mm-hmm. So, so that- that's, that's how that works. And that's not bad. And it kind of mm-hmm. makes sense, right? If Zoom is keeping a copy of the recording, they have to have the decryption key. Otherwise, they can't keep a copy of the recording. Mm-hmm. So th- that's very good advice. So hopefully all of you out there running your Zoom um, meetings uh, will take note of those things next time you hold it, an online meeting. And I've I seen security guides on Zoom. Zoom has one. Uh, other news sites have posted them. How to make your Zoom meetings more secure and private. The guides hmm. are easy to use. Zoom, uh, in the past couple of weeks, have pulled all of their security settings onto one page. as a button that says security on the bottom of your screen. So it is easier now. Mm-hmm. to set things securely than it was back when Zoom got thrust into the spotlight at the beginning of this pandemic. Oh, gosh, yeah. So, well, let's go on to another tool that is uh, actually a, a set of tools that's quickly growing. So we're hearing a lot in the news every day about COVID-19 tracing apps and COVID-19 tracing IoT devices that are quickly being put out on the market. And, you know, what are your thoughts about them and, it, and how that data is or is not encrypted or shared? Uh, are they, have they even had time to test all those things adequately yet? You know, a lot of the ones we hear about aren't real. They're still in development. Mm-hmm. The apps have been used in Israel and Singapore, a couple of other places. Not great success. What we know about contact tracing is that it requires trust and human beings. Mm-hmm. And the, the best countries that are, that are building these systems have a hybrid model. They have some, some computing tracking, but mostly health professionals interviewing people. Uh, what we know about the apps is that they're, they don't work very well. So let's talk about mm-hmm. concentration app. And, the, and the, the, the premise is that the app will know when you're close to somebody for more than 10 minutes, half an hour, whatever, this, whatever the setting is for a contact. I think it's less than six feet, more than 10 minutes. Whatever. I mean, I presumably you set that parameter. Mm-hmm. And then the app would know that, and there are some really good privacy features 
where that data isn't just uploaded into a government database. It's kept private. It's only uh, released uh, when you want to, when there's a reason. Now, this is a health emergency. Mm-hmm. So not a lot of privacy. And that's probably okay because it's a health emergency. Now, we want when the emergency goes away for privacy to be restored. But my main problem with these apps is not privacy at all. It's efficacy. Mm-hmm. They don't do what we like to think they do. So when we talk about identification, authentication apps, we talk about two types of errors, false positives and false negatives. So if you think of uh, your smartphone, a false positive is when someone else can pick up your phone and use the fingerprint reader and log mm. in as you. Right? That is a mm-hmm. false positive. The phone made a mistake that it thought somebody else was you. A false negative is a different kind of error. It's when you pick up your phone and you can't use your fingerprint. The phone made another mistake. It didn't recognize you as you. And all these systems have both false positives and false negatives. So let's talk about contact tracing apps. Mm-hmm. There are going to be lots of false positives. So one, the app isn't as sensitive as we like to think it is. The error rate that in 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 geography and proximity is great. And they're mm-hmm. using uh, GPS data, Bluetooth data. They're going to make mistakes. There will be times that it will miss a contact. Mm-hmm. Two, it doesn't take context into account. If you and I are separated uh, less than two feet for eight hours, we might be in two adjacent hotel rooms. So it doesn't know about walls and partitions and glass barriers and all of those things that mitigate a contact. Lastly, there are lots of contacts that don't result in transmissions. It isn't the case that if you are within six feet of somebody for more than 10 minutes, you automatically 100% get the disease. There is some transmission rate. It'll depend on whether you're inside or outside. Is the wind blowing? Is the person sneezing? Are you talking to each other? Are you facing each other? None of these things the app picks up. So there'll be lots of false positives. Lots of times the app registers a contact when there has has not been a transmission. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about false negatives. That's the other one. There'll be lots of times you get infected and the app won't warn you. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, it's geography. Right? The app's not going to register all of the contacts. It's how much the app is used. So you need something like an 80% penetration rate for the app to be useful. Even Singapore, only 20% before they abandoned the system. So mm. there'll be lots of people who have the disease, but not the app. Mm-hmm. So what good does the app even do? So here's the question. Right, You go out yeah. grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. You come back and the app says beep. You had a contact. What does mm-hmm. that mean? Should you isolate yourself? Kind of no. It's not, you know, no. Uh, we don't have ubiquitous, fast, accurate, cheap testing. So you can't get tested. So you kind of, there's no decision you can make based on what that app tells you. Mm-hmm. Conversely, you come back from the store. The app doesn't go beep. Does that mean you're safe? It doesn't either. So here's my problem. Uh, the app doesn't give me anything actionable to do. And the false alarms in both directions will be so high 
that people will be start tweeting and posting how the app doesn't work, and then we lose trust. Mm-hmm. And that feels very dangerous. Now, what I like about the various apps is the aggregate data. Mm-hmm. So there's one uh, IoT uh, thermometer, temp- fever thermometer, mm-hmm. where the company is posting aggregate data on fevers in different cities in the U.S. That's great data. Right? We can use that to see where the hotspots are for COVID. We're using that data to see how well people are in general following social distancing. Mm-hmm. Are they traveling less? I saw a graph a couple of days ago about uh, Apple directions data. So the, uh, the Apple Maps on the mm-hmm. iPhone, you can ask for directions. And you can see by day how many people asked for directions. And it went down dramatically when we started socially isolating, and it's been slowly climbing up. So we know that people are isolating a little less, right? They're, they're moving around more. That's really valuable stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's all aggregate that has no effects on privacy. But yeah, contact you- tracing is not something the app can do right now. We just don't have the accuracy of data to make it worthwhile. And my fear is inaccurate an inaccurate app is worse than nothing at all. Oh, yeah. Well, something that, that worries me greatly, too, is, you know, I'm located here in Iowa, and I'm sure you've probably heard of one of our House representatives. Uh, he's pretty, he makes a lot of very interesting statements, but his name is Steve King. He worries a lot of people in Iowa and worldwide, I think, because um, he talks about how he thinks during this pandemic they should uh, create a federal repository of everyone. Um, and make all of their health data publicly known and uh, make it so that you know everything about your neighbors. Now, I think he tends to go way to uh, the extremes, but oftentimes what he says reflects conversations that have taken place in the background. Um, So, you know, when you talk about privacy and all that data, you know, not just tracing apps, but just um, access to health data. I think that's something, too, that uh, we need to to think about why it's important for people to maintain ownership and control of their own health data. But like you said, aggregated data from the hospitals and the providers, I can see um, some great value in that to say, yeah, we have in this zip code area these who are infected according to our hospitals. But I don't know, just the the fact that we have lawmakers talking about making all of this public is very disturbing. Public seems disturbing, but this is actually a really important question. So I'm, I'm going to make it general. Okay. Right? So a lot of the data about us is very private and personal and has personal value. On the other hand, a lot of the data about us is even more valuable in aggregate mm-hmm. and has great societal value. How do we balance those two things? So let's take an easy one. I mentioned Apple Maps, Google Maps. So that data about real-time traffic is based on the fact that everybody using those apps is under surveillance. And that's how Google knows what the traffic is on each street because of people using it. 
So mm-hmm. there is an, an application. On the one hand, our personal location data, very private. On the other hand, a really big societal benefit mm-hmm. that we can route around traffic jams and we all get to our destinations faster. How do we make that work? How do we balance those two? Well, we could talk about how to balance that. You know, Google doesn't need everybody's data. They just need sampling data. You know, one in 10 people. doesn't have to know who the cars are. It could be anonymous. They don't have mm-hmm. to store it forever. It's only good for 10 minutes. All right, so here's a way I can start balancing that public good with the private good. All right, move to health data. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's what you said. Incredibly personal data about our individual health. On the other hand, putting it all in one big database and letting researchers add it, I think the health benefits will be enormous in ways we can't even comprehend. So how do we, what do we do there? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we could think about this. We could do some anonymization, probably not a lot because you need to know who people are. Uh, you can have very strict rules around who can access the data. Only authorized researchers submitting their uh, research in advance as a, an ethical review board. But I'm just kind of making this up. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we as society have to solve this. We can't just say your medical data is private and, no, and it's never going to be in these databases. The value is too great. But we also can't say it's in the databases and anybody can access it. The privacy concerns are too great. So I think this is actually a critical problem uh, for our, our society in this century. And mm-hmm. the answers will be unique in all applications. What works for driving data is not going to work for medical data. Mm-hmm. What works for medical data is not going to work for the data about our interests that advertisers use or the data about who we're talking to. It's very application-specific. Because the Mm -hmm. benefits and costs are unique to the type of data. Well, it seems especially when you're talking about health data, we already, I mean, HIPAA has been around for a couple of decades now. So, you know, the hospital systems, they know the types of security they need to have. They know de-identification that needs to occur with data. Uh, It just seems like instead of trying to put all of the health data into one single repository, there would be a way to have all these distributed repositories. So there, right. So there's another example. So can yeah. we distribute it somehow? Right? Mm-hmm. So, so you just come up with another way to start balancing this. And that'll work in some cases and not in others. And, and we don't know the details, but the guess. And once you start thinking about it, we will figure out ways to get the group benefit of the data. Right? The, all the driving data, so when I go across town, I'm not going to get stuck in a traffic jam. So that when someone discovers a new disease, we'll immediately can look at the database of individuals and see who's susceptible and see who – and just do large-scale drug surveys. I don't know what kind mm-hmm. of medical advances, but still keeping everyone's personal patient medical records private. Mm-hmm. We have to do, we're going to need to do both in all of these cases. And, and that's going to take some good, thoughtful, informed consideration by technologists who actually understand. And policymakers working together. I mean, it's not, yes. you don't want techies solving this because they'll come up with some tech solution that ignores like all of the, the human elements. <laughs> we really need tech people and policy people working together. Teammates. This is, 
it's something that I'm I'm pushing for. The yeah. notion of public interest technologists, that these problems are deeply technological, deeply social, and will not be solved by one silo or the other. It'll be solved by people with one, you know, one hand in each, by groups of people with different expertises. That's that's the way these problems get solved. Oh, exactly. And, you know, something else going on right now, the looking forward to November voting and people being afraid to go to the polls. I don't, you know, I can understand that. Um, so there's a lot of talk now about voting by mail or, you know, U.S. postal mail or voting online, voting by apps. Oh, my gosh. And here we are already uh, in June. Uh, so it's, you know, early June. We're recording this in May. So uh, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, if you don't have votes, if you're doing online voting or app voting without strong encryption, it seems like that opens up a whole big can of worms about what uh, could be done with all of those votes. I, I wouldn't trust uh, online voting with strong encryption. And pretty much nobody who works in security does, mm-hmm. simply because the risk is too great and software vulnerabilities are too plentiful. It's not about the math, it's about the software. Mm-hmm. The encryption is important, but not nearly enough. And you know, unlike banking, I, mean, I don't mind, you can do banking online, that's easy, even with lots of money, because banking is all audited. Everyone's name Mm -hmm. is attached to everything. You find a mistake, you can unroll it. Problem with voting is voting is anonymous. Mm -hmm. And the anonymity requirement means there's a lot of security you can't build into the back end because you need to maintain that anonymity of the ballot. And given that, the risks of online voting, of app voting, of internet voting are just much too great. And nobody thinks that's a good idea. Mail-in is easy. I've, mm-hmm. I've done mail-in voting myself for years. Yeah, right? me Oregon too. Runs all mail-in elections. We mm-hmm. know how to do mail-in voting. It is not susceptible to the same sort of host, wholesale voter fraud that internet voting is. And internet voting could, it could be done undetectably. Mm-hmm. And even worse, even if it's not done, it, it means the results aren't necessarily trusted. When you think about elections... There are two things elections do. They, they choose the winner. That's obvious. But they mm-hmm. also have to convince the loser. Mm-hmm. And if the loser isn't convinced, democracy dies. Mm-hmm. So you need systems that not only are, are secure, but are known and believed to be secure. And we do not have that with online voting. And D- it scares me a lot. Yes. We might go online. Mail-in I'm fine with. Mm-hmm. Online I'm not. Yeah, I've done mail-in. And, it, and it's not controversial. I mean, that's what everybody thinks. It works. I mean, very, very low uh, problems, very, very low fraud. So we're, we're almost at the end of our show here now. But, you know, in a couple of minutes' time, I mean, what do you want our listeners, our diverse listener base, you know, what's the primary point you want our listeners to take away from listening to our discussion today? That... Personal security is now national security, and that's where we started. That there's no difference between national security apps and personal security apps, and that 
when you make decisions on what level of security to give all of these systems, you have to you have to understand you have to accept that defense that dominates. Defense must win. These systems are too critical, too important, too vital to allow them to be designed with weaknesses, even if the security also has bad side effects. Security is just too important. Thank you very much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So today I've been speaking with computer, data, and encryption security guru, Bruce Schneier, about encryption. Please check out his site, schneier.com, and certainly check out his books. I know I want to check out his most recent one as well. Also, send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know. Uh, You can reach me at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. My new shows come on the first Saturday of each month. And then after that, you can hear them on demand uh, whenever you want to. And you can certainly hear them through all of your favorite apps. So also go to VoiceAmerica.com business channel website and uh, you can listen to them there. Until our next show, please Ask those that you do business with and who you work for, whoever is asking for your personal data. Ask them if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.